Morning, everybody. Morning. Bible time. Get your Bibles. If you don't have one, snuggle up to somebody who does. Uh, if you need one, we've got some of these um, blue-covered copies. Thank you. It's just, um, Neil always says, slip up a paw if you need one. A paw. I want to be British so bad. Our church has, since this past September until the week right before Easter, we've been going through the book of Matthew, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Matthew. Before that, you might remember, we spent four weeks over the summer um, exploring some favorite psalms. Before that, May of 2012 through August, we studied the book of Ephesians together. Before that, we studied the book of, we studied um, Kings in the Bible, we studied Saul, and we studied David and Solomon, and some of the mess that happened there, and then we ended our study with the, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Before that, you might remember we were doing two series at the same time. Uh, that sounds silly to say out loud, but it's what we did for several months. Rod was preaching his way through the story of Jacob, while a, a team of preachers, including my man Dan Mike and Neil and Ryan Wax and I, were marching our way through the book of Acts. Today, we start a new series. If today's your first week, if you're visiting today, this is a great time to come on in. <laughs> we're going to begin a new exploration of a new book that's going to take us till about mid-July. So open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. And while you turn there, let me ask, well, you know, I just said 1 Corinthians and there was like, I won't say there was a standing ovation. Okay, good. So why study the book of 1 Corinthians, okay? I mean, really, if you think about it, why study the book of 1 Corinthians? You know, aren't there some other more spectacular books of the Bible? I'm thinking here, Daniel, if I would have announced we're going to do, you know, 26 weeks in the book of Daniel, the place might have gone, whoa. We're going to do 35 weeks in the book of Revelation. The place where, wow, I can't wait to hear how Rod gets us out of that one. <laughs> right? But first, you know, I mean, really, like, apocalyptic literature is like the summer blockbuster of, uh, of biblical genres. I mean, or maybe we should have done something a little bit more youth-oriented. I mean, just like pack the college kids in and go verse by verse through Song of Solomon. Well, no and no. 1 Corinthians. Why study the book of 1 Corinthians? Well, what do you know about 1 Corinthians? Start here. What do you know about Corinth? What do you know about the city of Corinth and its location? Probably not a ton. I didn't until we decided to dive into this. Um, The city of Corinth is located on a little four-mile strip of land called an isthmus. I have a list. That's going to be hard to say a couple times here. But uh, the nation of Greece is two large land masses. There's a huge one up in the north, and there's a huge one in the south, and it's connected by this little four-mile strip of land. And that's where Corinth is. It's, It's right on this little strip of land. And so it's this major trade center. Everything that needs to get traded from north and south has to go through Corinth. And if you're going to trade from east and west, you really want to go to Corinth. It's going to save you like over 200 miles of sailing. So what they would do, if you had a big ship, you'd pull up on one of the coasts, let's say the east coast. You would unload all of your gear. They would move all of your bunch of guys, would grab it, carry it four miles, put it on a new boat, off you go. 
If you had a small boat, they actually have found, they would, it was easier to get the boat out of the water, put it on rollers, roll the whole boat four miles, drop it in the water, off you go. Save you 250 miles. So you can imagine, my, my point here is this, this is not a sleepy little town. This is not a sleepy little town. This is not Holland Harbor, okay? There are no Thomas Kincaid paintings of this city. This is a hopping city of 250,000 people, about. And before Paul gets to Rome, this is the biggest thing Paul's ever seen. That's its location. Let's talk about its culture for a minute. It's a very cosmopolitan city. There's activity day and night. They had themselves a merry little isthmus. You wondered how long it was going to take me to get to that joke, didn't you? It's got lots of languages. It's got lots of commodities, lots of stuff for sale. Just imagine if they let people live at O'Hare Airport. You can live there if you want. What would city would grow there? I mean, there's everything for sale in Corinth, and I mean everything. The Greek word, Dan and I were talking about some uh, Greek vocabulary. The Greek word Corinthizomai, Corinthizomai, is a verb that means to commit adultery. I mean, there was everything was for sale in Corinth. It was a hotbed of, let's leave it there. It was a hotbed. The city had two temples, one to Aphrodite, one to Apollos. The city may have had, experts think, as many as 2,000 prostitutes employed in the city. It was a sex-crazed city. That's the location of the city. That's the culture. So now ask yourself, what kind of church would be in that city? The church in Corinth was a large church where many people had believed and were baptized. In Acts 18, we hear the story. The Apostle Paul planted the church, and then he moved on. And at this point in the story, which is about A.D. 54, maybe 53, the winds of strange doctrine have blown, and the church has drifted off of its apostolic foundation. New teachers arrived after Paul who were more interested in speculation than in Scripture. They were more interested in guessing than in the gospel. They were more interested in fanciful theories than in faithful theology. And remember this, what we believe or what we don't believe shapes how we behave or don't behave. These new teachers tickled ears by teaching about practical things, but it was speculation. It was fanciful theories that were barely related to Christianity. There was chaos in Corinth. The church had small groups, but not the good ones. The church was divided. The church was divided by celebrity personalities. It was divided by social stratification lines. It was divided by the financial food chain. In the atmosphere of the church was this challenge to authority. It was a sort of, nobody's going to tell me what to believe, or I know my rights, and a lot of guarding and territorialism, which just manifested a, a lack of humility, a lack of consideration for each other. Their church was destroying their witness in the watching world. They flaunted their dysfunction in, in public. They're actually even suing each other. There were suits within the church that the whole town knew about. It was destroying their witness. They were a church fascinated by the fantastic. They were spellbound by the spectacular. Now, we don't need to ask, wow, I wonder what that would have looked like. Because, loved ones, look around our world. Surrounded by commerce, where everything's for sale, that's here. Sex crazed, that's here. 
Look at our church in North America. Do you see any wandering? Have you heard any fanciful theories? Any speculation? Any people talking loudly where the Bible is silent? You know any celebrities? But next, turn, turn the gaze inward. Look at your own heart. You see any wandering there? I love the honesty of old hymns. Robert Robertson, that's the guy's name. He wrote, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. He wrote these lyrics. I love singing these in church. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Another hymn. Um, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Even my best thoughts, my clearest, I, I dare not even trust that. But holy lean on Jesus' name, wrote Edward Moton, 1834. How about the honesty of Scripture? Any wandering there? When the Apostle Paul writes in Romans seven eighteen, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. There's a verse you don't see on a lot of coffee mugs. <laughs> Have you been speculating yourself? Are you disappointed by celebrities or gurus that you followed? Why 1 Corinthians? Because the problems in that church have reoccurred in every time and in every place. The church in Corinth is the perfect church to leave. Surely there's got to be a second Christian church of Corinth in that city somewhere. This church has got incompetent strategies. It's got inadequate structures. It has imperfect leaders. Oh, man, do you want to write this church a letter? Paul did. What would you say to them? What would you say to this church? How would your letter start? Let's stand together and read what Paul wrote. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our Almighty God, you are the God of truth. And you cannot lie. So we pray this morning that you would open your word to our hearts and that you would open our hearts to your word so that we can be changed for your glory and for our good. It's in the name of your son we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. All right, any surprises there? Was that the letter you were going to write? That's not the letter I was going to write. Mine was different than that. We're going to be looking over this text in detail in a moment, but I think it's really important to note how Paul starts this letter. He starts with the basics. You cannot solve problems without understanding the basics. You cannot solve geometry problems without understanding the basics of what a straight line is. You cannot solve weight 
loss problems without understanding basic concepts like calories. You can't solve spiritual problems without understanding certain foundational principles. It reminds me of this old story of uh, uh, Vince Lombardi, who's a football coach, NFL team, um, Green Bay Packers, one of the most successful um, um, coaches of all time. They actually named the Super Bowl trophy after him. That's how often he won it. They just started calling it his trophy. Well, his first year there, um, he was coaching the team, and um, they weren't Super Bowl champs, and they got beat really badly by a team they should have just annihilated. They weren't doing the basics well. They weren't blocking and running well. And so Lombardi, on Monday morning, called a team meeting. He got all the guys together, and he gave them a speech about the basics. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> now you think, it's kind of insulting. You're an NFL guy, and the coach is like, guys, let's start here. This is a football. But I think Paul would have loved that. I think Lombardi was completely Pauline at the moment there. (laughs) Because the church in Corinth had problems. And the apostle Paul pulls them together and he goes back to the basics. He's like, gentlemen and ladies, this is the gospel. And he's going to roll it out for us in slow motion. And it might feel as painful as this is a football but oh, we need it. Oh, we need it. Watch this go by. Let me give you three themes, kind of two main themes and an implication that are found throughout our brief text, nine verses. I think the last time I preached, Neil gave me 72 verses to preach. I have nine today. This is awesome. Three themes that are found throughout this brief text. I think viewing these themes will help us understand what Paul is reminding the church about, and it's going to help us understand where Paul's going for the rest of the letter. Okay, theme number one. Ready? Our salvation is completely from God. Our salvation is completely from God. That's grammar time, all right? Look in your Bible at our passage today. Look at the passage. Find the verbs. If you've got a pen, you might want to circle the verbs in in this passage. If you've got a, a pew Bible, go ahead and write in it. No problem. That's good news. That's what it's there for. Okay? In the whole passage, there's one verb for what Paul does in verse 4, give thanks. There's one verb for what we do in verse 7, wait. And there's six other verbs in the passage. Six other verbs in the passage. See if you can find them. Yeah. (laughs) Even if you're young. Go ahead. You know your verbs more than we older folk. Six verbs in there. They're, take a peek. They're passive verbs, okay? An active verb is like in the sentence, dad washed the dishes. Dad is the activist. Washed is what he is doing. The dishes are receiving the action. A passive verb would be a sentence such as, the dishes are washed. It kind of leaves dad out of it, maybe because he broke a dish while he was washing them. So there's all these passive verbs, and we're going to like investigate it. What is it saying with all these passive verbs in here? Let's dig into the DNA of this text. We've got nine verses in front of us. It's a great feast for us. Our first passive verb is found in verses 1, verse 2, and verse 9. And it's this verb called. Do you see that one? Did you find that one? Called. Verse 1 says, Paul was called. It's a passive verb, which leaves 
the activist out. It leaves the subject out. So the question is, who called Paul? Who called him? God. Yep. God called Paul, or should we say Saul of Tarsus, right? He was on the road to Damascus we studied in the book of Acts, and Saul, Saul, he called him. Paul did not seek Jesus. God was the one who stopped him mid-stride on the road to hell. Paul's salvation was completely from God. Look at verse 2. Who else was called? This verse says, we were called. That's a passive verb again. Who called us? This is an easy one. Come on. Who called us? Yeah, God called us. You're going to love this. You were on your own road to Damascus, weren't you? You didn't believe God knew you. You didn't know that he cared. But he called you by name. You were addressed. You heard your salvation is completely from God. Remember what we learned in Ephesians 2. Apart from Christ, a person is dead in their trespasses and sins. They're without life. They're not desiring God. They're not trying to please God. They're in the grave of sin. They're without God or hope in this world. Paul's going to write later in this same book, chapter 6. He says, don't be deceived. Don't fall for this trick. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were you. That's where you were, but, but now they're not that anymore. What happened? They were called. God called us into light by the gospel. The call of God comes with power. Just think through for a moment about the great story of Lazarus. A guy, sick, died, wrapped in a cloth, put in a tomb, stone there. Jesus is like... You've got you to move the stone. Could Jesus have moved the stone himself? Like, just by like, stone, be gone. He's like, you guys should get in on this. Here, uh, you, I'll move the stone. He's like, Lazarus, come here. The call of Christ comes with power. That's the exact same way it works now. Some of you that are far from God right now, I am praying that while I am preaching, you will hear God's call. Last time I preached in this room, a lady who did not know God gave her life to Christ. She heard God's call. I'm praying that happens again. Hear the call. Know this. A Christian is one who's been called by God and responded to that call with repentance and faith. If you haven't responded to the call of God, you're not really a member of the church. No, no matter what mailing list you're on, or if you get the emu, okay? At best, you're associated with us in participation, but fundamentally, you're not a member. Member like part of the body member. Hear the call this morning. Our salvation is completely from God. So first, we're called. Second passive verb is found in verse 2. It's the verb sanctified. Yeah, you found it. Again, if believers are sanctified, who sanctified them? Yeah, God sanctified them. God has done it. God's people become God's people because of God's activity. What good news for us. Our salvation is completely from God. The word sanctified provides a really interesting perspective on this. It means set apart, and it's rich with all these Old Testament sorts of um, images. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 describes how God set apart 
Israel from the other nations. He sanctified them. Exodus 31.43 describes how the tabernacle was set apart by God. He sanctified it. He sanctified it for his glory. Similarly, God set apart the utensils in the temple. He sanctified them for his service. So here we are, believers. Here we are on a Sunday morning. We've been sanctified. We've been set apart by God to be his people. We've been set apart by God to show his glory. We've been set apart by God for his service. We're sanctified. Our salvation is completely from God. We've been called. We've been sanctified. Third passive verb. Our third passive verb is this. It's found in verse 4. It says that we have been given grace. We've been given grace. Who gave us grace? Are you getting this one? Are you getting it? Good. God's given us grace. We saw the term give used several times in the book of Matthew. Um, In Matthew 6, we asked God to give us this day our daily bread. In Matthew 20, Jesus shows us that God, the Father, is the great giver. In the parable of the laborers, the father rewards the last worker with, to join with the same wage that he paid the others. He says, I choose to give this last worker as I gave to you. God is this great giver. Jesus himself came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God is described in general as a giver, but Paul wants us to see something more specific here. God has given us grace. He's given us grace. Grace, you showed me grace. I'm just so excited when that song comes up. Here it is. It's right out of 1 Corinthians. He's given us grace. Grace here is this large file cabinet drawer that holds many of the specific blessings that the passage is going to mention. Grace is this huge, huge category that's got lots of pieces inside of it. Grace means this. It means nothing in the world caused Jesus to leave heaven. Nothing in the world caused him to leave heaven. Jesus moves entirely out of his own love. He's moved by nothing outside of himself. I saw a tweet this week from a Christian rapper that said, God gives us grace not because we are awesome, but because he is. Isn't Isn't that right? God gives us grace not because we're awesome, but because he is. Such good news especially on days where I'm not feeling particularly awesome, which is every day. God gives us grace, not because we're doing so great. He'll give you a little top off there, but because he is so awesome. Humanity has not held some enormous conference and determined that we need to ask God for his help, okay? The reality is quite the opposite. Humanity has turned its back on God. Salvation is initiated by God's grace. The story of the Bible is this. Our salvation is completely from God. So we've been called. We've been sanctified. We've been given grace. Fourth passive verb, verse 5. We've been enriched in all speech and knowledge. We said that grace is this large file cabinet drawer that holds all the blessings. Well, now Paul pulls the drawer open, grabs some folders, and starts throwing them at you. Here they come. Here's what we've been graciously given. We've been graciously given riches. We've been graciously given riches. Our God is not a stingy God. He is not like budget-conscious penny-pinching, like your grandma who would write you a check for your fifth birthday for 35 cents with that squiggly grandma handwriting, right? 
It gets squiggly because she's been pinching pennies so much, right? God's not like that. God throws open the heavens to pour out blessings upon us. He's so, he's so generous. He makes our ideas of generosity look threadbare. We've been made rich, but not in some pathetic, materialistic way. God says that the church has been enriched in all speech and knowledge. Some commentators here just thought this was really ironic, like Paul's like making a joke here. Because speech and knowledge, are, you're going to see later, speech and knowledge are basically Corinth's main problems. Those are the two sticks of dynamite that are blowing the place up. But he's making a course correction with us. Paul's starting with basic concepts, foundational principles. This is a football, he's saying. Here it is. Your gifts are from God. There's nothing evil about them, but you need to recognize their source. You've been enriched in all speech and all knowledge by God. Our salvation is completely from God. The fifth and sixth passive verbs are found in verses 6 and verse 8. Verse 6 says the verb confirmed. Verse 8 says sustained. These are actually the same Greek word, babaya-oh. That's how it's said. Babaya-oh. Babaya-oh. I feel like a four-year-old saying that. The NIV does a really great job with this translation. Because it it translates verse 6 as confirm, and verse 8 as God will keep you firm to the end. It's the same verb. It's just a different form of it in Greek. He's confirmed you. He will keep you firm to the end. God's people become God's people because of activity, because of God's activity. And now Paul adds, God's people remain God's people because of God's activity. God has not called you by name, redeemed you by his precious blood, delivered you from the bondage of sin, introduced you into eternal life, freed you from condemnation, only to say, okay, now you're on your own. Good luck with that. He hasn't done that. Believers, because we own Christ's death for our past, we now own Christ's life for our future. Jesus did not say on the cross, go out there and give it your all. He said, it is finished. He said, it is finished. And our lives are spent fleshing out this finishedness. We're going to return to this theme later. So that's our first theme. Our salvation is completely from God. Such good news. Feels a little basic. Feels like I probably had that when I came in. But just allow that to shape and to change us. Our salvation is completely from God. The second theme from this text is found in a word that Paul mentions nine times in nine verses. You take a peek. There's a word that's in there nine times in nine verses. If you're studying the Bible on your own, that is called uh, emphasis by repetition. Nine times in nine verses. Can you guess what it is? Yeah. Yeah, that's the word. It's more than a word. It's more than a theme. It's more than just a name. It is the Lord Christ Jesus. Mentioned nine times in nine verses. You think he's got a point? You think he's trying to say something? Here's the, here's the way I want to say it. Our salva- first, our salvation is completely from God. Now, our salvation is completely through Christ. Our salvation is completely through Christ. This enormous theme is glorious. And it becomes more glorious and more beautiful the more you study it. 
the more you investigate it, the more you wander into it and think about it and ponder it, it, it gets prettier and better. I'm just going to hit some highlights for you this morning encourage you to dig deeper this week. When we say our salvation is completely through Christ, we kind of are saying three things. We're saying, first of all, that the cross of Christ is the means of our salvation. How do we get this salvation? What's the means of this salvation through Christ? It's the cross of Christ is the means of our salvation. It's not surprising. The world thinks they can have a relationship with God without Jesus. Have you met people in the world, they think they have a relationship with God without Jesus. That's because they don't think there's a problem between themselves and God. But the Bible says, the Bible says you can't talk about knowing God unless Christ is at the center of it. You can't talk about relationship with God. You can't talk about closeness with God. You can't talk about being specifically really personally blessed by God unless you believe that Jesus Christ is God's son and you're, you are in desperate need of him to be your savior because he shed his blood for your sins. That's not surprising. Of course the world doesn't get it. That's why they're the world. The stunning thing is people in the church don't get it. The stunning thing is even large numbers of people in our churches, in this church, forget this. Check out some of the worship songs that many churches sing or songs that you hear on Christian radio. According to the song, why does God hear our praise? Top three answers on the board to that question. Number one, there's not, don't worry, there's nothing on the screens. Why does God hear our praise? One, because of the fervency of our hearts. That's why, because we really mean it. Two, because of how loud we're singing. That's why God hears us. And three, most, but the most common answer, because we're the ones singing it. That's why God hears us. It's because it's us. That's not in the New Testament. That is not in the New Testament. That's not Paul's view. Everything is said in terms of its relationship to Jesus. Why does God hear our songs? Why does God hear our prayers? Why does God receive our praise? Because of the work of Jesus. Just let that be just some good news for you. On days where your heart isn't firing 10 out of 10, God doesn't hear you because of the, the passion of your heart. He hears you because of the perfection of his son. On days where you feel like my voice isn't that great, I'm physically run down right now, maybe I feel like God's a long ways away from me. Well, the distance between you and God has nothing to do with that. It's, be, it's the perfection of his son is why he receives our prayer and our praise. Jesus is the center of it all. There's no salvation apart from him. There's no relationship apart from him. It's achieved through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Let's look at verse 3 here. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's going to take this traditional Greek greeting. They would start their letters with the word um, kerian, which means to rejoice. That's how they would start. That was like... Greetings. And he changes it to, instead of um, carrien, he changes it to charis, which means grace. We've talked about grace already. Paul adds the traditional Jewish greeting of peace, shalom to it. Grace is the description of all of God's activities towards his children. Peace is the result of that activity. Now just watch how these concepts just get front and center at the cross. Grace from God is portrayed on Good Friday. Peace 
with God is displayed on Easter. Grace means God is affectionate. Peace means we get the benefit. Since the cross is the means of our salvation, the empty tomb is proof that the check cleared with God. The empty tomb means that Jesus accept sorry, the empty tomb means the Father accepted Christ's death for the payment for our sins. The cross was good enough for the Father. As Pastor Ray Ortland writes, we are not going to spend eternity shouting, worthy is the law. We will spend eternity shouting, worthy is the lamb. Big difference. Big difference. And what about us? Look at verse 8. Now we are waiting for the revealing of Jesus Christ. The empty tomb means the cross was good enough for the Father. And our waiting for Christ revealing shows the cross is good enough for us. Take, take, take that work salvation. Here, this is, here's a sword. Whenever you feel like you're, you need to like earn God's favor, have you slipped into this? I slip into this all the time. It's the default setting of our hearts. I believe that Jesus died for me to pay for my sins in the past, and now I think I have to stay right with God by obeying him perfectly. But I can't. I tried. A lot of times. Never works. So here's a sword to stab work salvation. The, the verb that the believers get in this entire, what's, what's the verb we get for this entire passage? It's the word wait. That's your word. Wait. That is a profound comfort to us who try to work our way into God's heart. It's like, no, you're, you're in God's heart. Just rest here. Why? Because the cross of Christ is the means of our salvation. Our salvation is completely through Christ. Okay, so if the cross of Christ is the means of our salvation, because our salvation is completely through Christ, we have this second truth. Union with Christ provides the benefits for our salvation. Union with Christ provides the benefits for our salvation. The cross is the way that we get there. Union with Christ provides the actual benefits of our salvation. So how are we sanctified in verse 2? We're sanctified in, what what does your Bible say? Sanctified in? We're sanctified in Christ Jesus. How are we given grace? Verse 4 says, grace given in Christ Jesus again. Verse 5 says that we were enriched in him. In who? In Christ Jesus. Verse 9 says that we have been called into the fellowship of Christ Jesus our Lord. All of the benefits of our salvation come through our union with Christ. I've used this illustration before. I like it enough, I'm going to use it again. Jesus is a bunker, not a baker. He's a bunker, not a baker. What's a baker? A baker is a guy who bakes bread. Are you with me so far? A baker is a guy who bakes bread. And you go to him, and the benefits of him is he gives you the bread, you take it to your house, and you eat the bread. And if something terrible happens to the baker, that's sad. But you still have his benefits. Does that make sense? A bunker's not like that. A bunker, you only get the benefits of a bunker when you are inside the bunker. Okay? If my wife and I are walking around and a guy comes up with, his, with a knife. I can't turn to my wife and like, don't worry about it, honey. Yesterday I bought a bunker. We, we should be good. I, I, I purchased it. No, it's only good if you're inside of it. Get it? Okay, the benefits of Christ are like the bunker. You only get them when you're in him. 
He doesn't give them to you and then off on your own. Like, oh, you need some righteousness. Here's some righteousness for you. You need some uh, sanctified. Here, here's some sanctified. You, you, uh, the Holy Spirit, that's a benefit of, amen, the Holy Spirit inside you. Is that a benefit of being a Christian? He doesn't like break off a piece of the Holy Spirit and give it to you. Here, here. Why are we sanctified? We're sanctified because we're in him. What righteousness do we have? We're united to Christ. We have his righteousness. That's why we're righteous. It's not some different thing. It's his own righteousness that we have. Why are we sanctified? It's because we're united to Christ. Because Christ is set apart, we have that exact set-apartedness. Why do we have the Holy Spirit? This one's a little trickier. Why do we have the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus has the Holy Spirit. That's why. We don't have some different relationship with the Holy Spirit than Christ has. We are united to Christ. We have the same Holy Spirit that Christ has. We're united to him. We have all of the benefits of being a Christian come through our unity with Christ. To review, the cross of Christ is the means of our salvation. Union with Christ provides the benefits of our salvation. And last in this part, our salvation is completely through Christ. That means the mission of Christ is the purpose of our salvation. The mission of Christ is the purpose of our salvation. You can see this right in verse 1. Paul calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is one who is sent. Christ's mission is the purpose of Paul's salvation. So you'll, you'll be reading Paul, and like one minute he'll seem like the humblest guy on earth. And like people are insulting him, and he's like, not a big deal. And people are, are talking bad about him, and he just kind of ignores it. And people are judging him, and he's like, you know, it's a small thing to be judged by you. Just, okay, no problem. He's beaten. He's like, I'm used to that. That's happened a lot. And then somebody will say something, and you'll just see Paul just like get out of his chair and like jump on somebody. You're like, What? is going on. How can Paul be so humble and so confident at the same time? How can he downplay his personal rights and his personal role and yet be so unyielding when it comes to his ministry? Here's why. It's because he's called. It's because he's called. His ministry began not by his own choosing, but by the will of God. His salvation not only gives him forgiveness, it gives him this calling. It's the same thing for us. What's our mission look like? In this text, it it involves two things. In verse 2, it says that our mission is calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. In verse 6, it says that our mission involves the testimony about Jesus Christ. So two things here. I'll just say it really simply. It involves worship and witness. It involves worship, calling on the name of our Lord Jesus. Witness, the testimony about Christ. Our worship needs to involve calling on the name of our Lord Jesus. Our lives display neediness. Neediness. We don't, there's no swagger in the Christian life. There's no like, you know, here's the cross, and I come to it, and then what happens is I kind of like put my, I kind of like put my hand up against it and kind of kick my leg like this. And like, yeah, come on in, I got to figure it out. This is, that's not it. The cross displays, our whole lives display our need. The way we talk needs to display our need for Jesus Christ. The way that we pray needs to display our need for Jesus Christ. The way that we sing, the way that we worship needs to display our need for Jesus Christ. I'm desperate for you. I am lost without you. And that is not just a lyric that was not on the screen. Now that I think about it. Like that's the song of our hearts. Apart from me, Jesus said, 
You can do, what's the word? You can do nothing. Anybody proven that true? I've proven that true lots of times. Apart from him, I can do nothing. Neediness. But then, here's the glorious news. Not only do we need him, we have him. (laughs) There's the gospel for you. We have him. He's ours. He belongs to us. We belong to him. Jesus Christ never lets us down. He never disappoints. We're going to return to this theme of worship later. Also, witness. Speaking for Christ. This testimony about Christ. Eternally speaking. Just been so discouraged by the news that I've been watching um, over the last two weeks or so. Anybody else just sort of feel like in the last two or three weeks, like, you know, it's been in a lot of ways bad news for the good guys for a couple of weeks here. It's taking it on the chin, it seems like. Eternally speaking, though, it's not much use talking to people about the Christian view of marriage or the Christian view of politics or the Christian view of work if they haven't believed the testimony of Christ. Many of us shrink back from talking about our faith because we're afraid that we're going to get asked a question that we can't answer. And I really want to help us with this. And I need to help myself with this. We're afraid if I start speaking about God and what he's done, somebody's going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. And rather than appear stupid, I'd rather just sort of not enter into that. But I think that's not, that's not right. That's not right. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not spread by experts explaining the information they know. The gospel of Jesus Christ is spread by converts celebrating the conversion they own. I'm going to say that again because it took me about 10 minutes to write it. (laughs) The gospel of Jesus Christ is not spread by experts explaining the information they know. It's spread by converts celebrating the conversion that they own. Okay, just think about Lazarus for a minute. He's coming out of the grave, like, wah, like unwrapping him. And he's like, what was that? Just imagine the questions that they would have had for Lazarus. Lazarus. What about amino acids? Your body's been decayed. How are the amino acids working in you right now. And he's like, huh? I'm alive right now. (laughs) I don't know. What does amino acids mean? Can you help me with this arm? This is awesome. I'm back. Martha, did you see that? I thought we were going to put me in the smaller tomb. I thought... You guys spent that much money on me? Sorry, sorry. Amino acids. I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know. I'll look it up someday. (laughs) Baby. (laughs) But think about it. That's what we're afraid of. Wait a minute, Christian. Why is there evil in the world? Why? There's darkness in the world. Explain to me why. Well, here's the truth. I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I know it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God's forsaken the whole world. It doesn't mean that, well, look, at what about all the suffering in the world? How do you explain what happened in Connecticut a couple months ago? How could a God let that happen? I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I know what it does mean, though, for sure. It, or it can't mean this, that God's angry at the whole world because he sent his son into it. 
He, sent, he himself has personally felt the suffering that we're talking about here. Can I connect all those dots for you? I can't. Wish I could. I'll look into it. I'll think about it. But I'm not going to let the fact that I can't explain every jot and tittle of the Christian life stop me from talking about this fact. I'm alive. I was dead a minute ago. I'm alive now. I'm going to be talking about that. I'm going to be talking about that. And if that makes people uncomfortable because they have some intellectual questions, like no one's ever accepted Christ because of statistical probability, okay? No one's ever done that. So just like speak candidly about your faith. If there's questions that you get that you can't answer, like do some research on it, but don't let it stop you from talking. You're alive. You're alive. So far... Our world has many views of God. They say God must be like this, but they've made that up. Jesus says in John 1.18 that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. What does Jesus say about us? Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what he says about us. That's his testimony. It's the apostles' testimony, as we're going to see when we hit the beginning of chapter 2. Paul says in Galatians 3 that it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul avoided all sorts of conversations to talk about this one thing, Jesus Christ crucified. Just think if Paul had been like really politically driven. How many different like marches on town hall in Corinth could they have done? They could have done a different march on town, on town hall every day for 18 months, the 18 months that he spent in Corinth. Do you know what he did for 18 months in Corinth? Here's a strategy. I love it. It's so familiar to us. It's what we're doing here at this church. Preach the word, plant the church. Preach the word, plant the church. And then grow a, trans, a body of transformed followers of Jesus Christ that can go change Corinth. Not with some sort of like crazy political thing that we're driving. We have, we have all sorts of different opinions about politics in this room and finances and sequesters and I don't even know all the words. Here's, we, we can't get bogged down in that. We've got to change hearts. We've got to change lives. As we change that, just watch. We'll, we're going to spread out. We're going to start speaking for Jesus. Change the world. Redeem the world with his power in that way. Our two themes so far have been our salvation is completely from God. Second, our salvation is completely through Christ. And now here's our third and final theme. It's not much as, so much a theme as an, an implication and a celebration. Here it is. Our salvation is completely amazing. Our salvation is completely amazing. It's completely from God. It's completely through Christ. It's completely amazing. How amazing? I'm just going to pick up a couple of our earlier themes here. Our salvation has an amazing finish. Our salvation has an amazing finish. God is faithful. He will accomplish his purposes. Do you see how that protects us? Protects us as an individual, protects us as a church. God will accomplish his purposes. What if we didn't believe this? What if we didn't believe that? What would our church look like? If we didn't believe this, our church would battle two dangers. Here's one. The first one is feeble monotony. If we had no assurance that the church was God's victorious plan, our church could get discouraged and descend into the pathetic place of simply going through the motions. Well, 
We tried. It didn't really, who knows if it's going to work or not. We'll just go through the motions. Okay? Feeble monotony. The second danger is frenzied activity. If we had no assurance that the church was God's victorious plan, then our church could push and push and push because it's all up to us. Yes, it's God's story, but guess who the heroes of the story are? Us. Oh boy. Oh boy, that's exhausting and impossible. Are you caught in either of these? Paul doesn't want to see us in feeble monotony or in frenzied activity. He calls us to full maturity. We're not encouraged by who we are. We're not discouraged by who we are. These Corinthian believers, Paul will write in verse 26, and we grand rapidian believers... We're not wise, we weren't powerful, we're not noble. We are foolish, weak, and lowly, and that's how God works. This is who he uses for his purposes. Foolish, flawed, and fearful people who live in his power. We need to recognize and tap into the source of Paul's confidence. God's character, God's activity, God's generosity, God's faithfulness. It comes from recognizing and receiving and celebrating this truth. Our salvation is completely amazing. It's got an amazing finish. You have faith to believe that? Like I said, if you just watch the news the last two weeks, it seems like maybe the church of Jesus Christ won't even exist in 50 years. The trajectory that it looks like right now. Oh man, I wonder if that's how the believers in China felt when that place went secular. I wonder if that's how they felt now that they're like three times our size. You know, so like... I read a statistic like 18 different times in human history, um, the dog has eaten Christianity. And 18 times the dog has died. (laughs) Finally, I I just want to conclude with this implication. Our salvation is completely amazing. It's got an amazing song. Remember Paul's description of us calling on the name of the Lord in our discussion of worship? Here's a question. Why do we feel better after a time of sung worship? We say to ourselves at the end of a time like that, like, oh, I needed that. Have you ever noticed how often after singing, people hug each other? At the beginning of a service, Greg will say, turn to the person next to you and shake a hand, and it's kind of this like, good morning, West Michigan. (laughs) And I don't want to call out any couples here by name in our church, but I would just point out that things get noticeably more affectionate in here after a time of sung worship, okay? Okay. (laughs) I want to say something unusual. I want to say something unusual here. First and foremost, it's not because of the songs or the singing. It's because of the silence. During worship, there is a profound silence that happens. Because our ears resound with the praise of God Almighty, you can't hear Satan. You can't hear the accusations of the enemy. He's as good as silent. Because our ears resound with declarations of truth, the lies of the world, you can't hear them. They're as good as silent. Because our ears resound with celebrations of faith, you can't even hear your own doubts. The doubts that bounce around your head. I'm walking around um, um, a mall and I'm seeing people seem really happy and I'm like, maybe they're right and I'm wrong. And the doubts that bang around in my head when we declare the truth of who God is, 
We drown out that noise. Oh, it's, it's better than the, they're silent. When we declare the truth of who God is, remind ourselves of what he's done, we drown out that noise. We bury the chaotic murmurings with a new song of faith. This is not just a mere discussion of faith. This isn't a mere declaration of truth. Of course, this truth is worthy of discussion. It's worthy of declaration. But this truth demands to be sung. Demands to be sung. Returning to our earlier observation, why after worship all the hugs and all the tears? Why? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. For a few glorious moments, we shut up all of the chaos. We de- th- this is what the declared word of God does. We fill our minds with truth and we silence the lying accusations of the enemy. We fill our lungs with the air of Eden and we sing the triumphant song that has overcome the world. And our hearts are filled with faith that triumphs over our doubts. That's why. So please, cry. Cry like the little baby that you are, child of God. Why do you cry? Here's why I do. I cry because it feels so good to take right things for granted. You know what I mean? Like sometimes, like, it's so hard. Worldliness is the things that make godliness seem strange. And during a time of worship, like my heart catches, I sing the truth, I believe it, the Spirit comes and implants it in my heart, and it just seems like, yes, this is what I was born to do. Jesus Christ is at the, is at the top of the flagpole, and we're all saluting, and this is what we were born to do. This is what the whole world should be like. That feels right. I'm looking forward to the day when that's normal. I'm looking forward to the day of a new normal when that's what we have, a glorious new normal. Our salvation is completely from God. Our salvation is completely through Christ. And our salvation is completely amazing. Know this for a fact. This is the glorious inheritance that awaits you. Satan's defeat is currently guaranteed, but it will be completely accomplished. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Son, and he will reign forever. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this morning and for this great salvation that you have given us. God, we thank you for the encouragement that it is to our hearts, that it does not rely on us, on our efforts, on our own character, our achievement, our passions, God, but that all of these things are results of who you are and of what you have done. Our hearts burn when we see clearly who you are and what you've done for us. Our voices leap to sing your praise when we recognize how worthy you are, Jesus Christ. May that be our experience again this morning. We pray for your glory and our good. Amen.